thank you all for, uh, for being here. I am honored, truly, that I get to be here this, after, this morning. And um, as we wrap up our conference, have you all had a good time? Yes. Right on. I want, you to, I want you to speak to me as we get started. Tell me, what is the one thing that has stood out to you most so far? Speak to me. Look to Jesus. Good. Don't waste your time. Be doers of the word. Anything? Walking with community. Very good. I think for me, the uh, the thing that stood out most was Andy saying yesterday, oh, you're a confessionalist. You live by a confession of faith. Great. How'd that confession help your denomination reject the modernist infiltration of your churches and institution 100 years ago? I thought that was powerful. So but before you leave, because this has been a blessing to you in many ways, I want just to make sure that you thank the other guys that spoke. Make sure that you speak to each one of them and let them know how much this meant. Many of us flew from all over the place. We left our wives, our kids. Like me, I have four kids, nine, seven, four, and one. Left them in Arizona with my wife to, to come and do this. And so please, I'm, I'm not asking you to thank me. I'm asking you to thank the other guys. Let them know how much this conference has meant to you. It has been amazing to see God work in this room. That the God of the universe, the one who, who measures the, the entire universe with the span of his hand, multiple billions of light years, and he's like, it's about that big. That that God would work in this room is truly remarkable. It is amazing. And so uh, I want you to do one thing. I want you to take out your phone. This guy right here, I want you to take your phone out. I want you to show me, show me your phone. You can see your phones. Perfect. I want you to find that little thing on the side that turns it off or silences it. And I want you to click that thing right now. Silence that. Then I want you to put them on the ground upside down. Okay. So you can't even tell what's happening. If you use your Bible on your phone, well, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know what to do about that. Instead, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as you are turning there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to pray. and I'm going to be done with all of the introductory stuff, and we're going to jump in to, uh, to the preaching, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, join me in prayer. Jesus, in studying for this message, I was reminded of John 15, that apart from you, we can do nothing. Not a few things, not some things, or even most things, we can do nothing at all. And that even includes right now. That includes our time together, any good, any spiritual good, any eternal good that would happen right now only happens if you are at work. And frankly, it's like Moses, if you don't, if your spirit, if your presence doesn't go with me, I don't want to go. And so I beg you, please work in this room one last time during this conference. Take these truths, take the things we're going to talk about and make them make sense for us. 
so that we can understand what it means to be faithful and fruitful in our lives and in our ministries. That would be evidence of your grace for each of us, your kindness, your mercy, again, that you would would condescend from your throne in heaven and work here in this room. And so please, please do these things, I pray. Amen. So last time I came here, I told my kids I'd get them a souvenir from New York City. I I did that the first time I came here in 2020. They remembered that, so they wanted me to do that again in 2021. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. I had the hardest time finding them something that was actually worth me buying. Ton of junk but not a lot of really good stuff out there. So what did I do when I got home? I went on Amazon, found stuff from New York City that said New York City on it, bought it, and then gave it to them. They had no idea. It was awesome. (laughs) It is a joy to be back here. I love this church. I love seeing what God is doing in this church. Andy assigned me the topic faithfulness and fruitfulness. I didn't ask him why until yesterday, but by God's grace, my time at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona, has had a fruitfulness that I never would have believed. Seven years ago, when I became the lead pastor of Redeemer, zero affiliation with the Redeemer here, in case you're wondering. If you told me then what would happen to Redeemer, I never would have trusted you. 2015 me would have thought 2022 me was insane. Why? Well, when I got to the church, it was on life support. It was 34 and a half years old at the time. And the best I can tell, the peak attendance at the church was one Christmas Eve about five years earlier where there were 400 people. My first Sunday, there were 193 people. So half the church had already left before I even got there. And that didn't stop when I arrived either. Just about every Sunday thereafter, we had less people attending than the week before. And then one week, we dropped by 40 people, 30% of our attendance gone in one week. I panicked. What in the world just happened? Turns out the former pastor, a deacon, and a Sunday school teacher were recruiting people to leave the church because they were going to start a new one. Thankfully, the former pastor got a job, so he left. And I knew the Sunday school teacher, so I confronted him. And he's like, you know what? You're right. This is not good, what we're doing. I'm going to leave it. So that was great. The deacon, though, he kept going. And one Sunday in November of 2014, we dropped by 40 people because that deacon started a church one mile east of us. One mile. After eight months, we'd grown from 193 people to 90 people. And the members thought I'd done such a good job that they said, would you be our lead pastor? So over the next nine months after that, the church stabilized, praise the Lord. And over the next year, we grew to about 300 people. Our budget got out of the red so dramatically that our bookkeeper pulled me aside one day and she told me she'd never seen anything before like this financial turnaround that we experienced. She she even used the word miracle. Then in the summer of 2017, we started growing again. And that growth didn't stop until the pandemic hit in March of 2020. So the church had grown from 3,300 people to 1,200 people in less than three years, or it, had, or it had grown from 90 people to 1,200 people in exactly five years. We may have been the fastest growing church in Arizona, and we, we weren't even trying to grow at all. 
I had a high up guy in the denomination the church is a part of. When I, when I described what was happening to him, he said to me, John, you're in it every day, so you don't really know what's happening. So let me tell you, I've been in church work for 30 years. 50% of church turnarounds don't turn around, they die. Of the 50 that survive, 50% that survive, less than 1% experience the kind of growth that you're talking about. And then he said the word, John, you're describing a miracle. The pandemic didn't stop the growth either. Um, our online attendance went from around 1,000 people on YouTube to over 20,000. Today, it's over 30,000. Candace, who's a part of this church now, is she here? There she is. So uh, Candace uh, lived in Louisiana, got saved, and uh, started being discipled by our content all the way in Arizona. She had the hardest time finding a church in our area. So one Sunday, she actually flew out to Arizona and we baptized her. I'm responsible now at that point. So I stayed in touch. And shortly after being baptized, she said, she's, she's moving here for a job. I told her about this church. All of you welcomed her with open arms as I knew you would. And so thank you for that. She's, she is a testimony to what God is doing in this, in this church that almost died in the middle of nowhere, Phoenix. Like most churches, we took time off of meeting in person. After some starts and stops, we reassembled for good in August of 2020. And on that first uh, Sunday, we had just under 500 people. In one calendar year, so August of 2021, we hit 2,000 people. So 400% growth in one calendar year. Today, five services every weekend, two on Saturday, three on Sunday. Our staff has grown from three full-time and one part-time to 30 staff, 10 pastors. There's more fruit I can point to, but listen, I'm only telling you all of this so that you could hear about what God has done. That's it. My team and I, we are nothing. We didn't do any of that. A dear man who's, as of about a month ago, is now with the Lord. I remember him pulling me aside after service one day and saying, you must be so proud of all that you've done. Nobody thought this church had a chance and look at it now. And I stopped him in that moment. I said, Jack, you see that guitar on the stage up there? That's me. I've done nothing here. The Lord picked me up and played. I'm a tool. That's all I am. Or think about it with the idea of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Farmers faithfully clear the ground, cultivate the soil, plant the seeds. They water the seeds. They protect the plants. They prune the trees. They put a ton of work into farming, but their faithful efforts don't produce one apple, one strawberry, one watermelon. At times, they do a ton of work and get a massive crop. At other times, they do a ton of work, maybe even more work, and get no crop. Why? Because it's God who causes the fruit to grow. It's God who produces the crop. Fruit and ministry is the same way. It's given. Like salvation, it's granted. It's not earned. It's not produced by the will or work of man. Fruit depends on God and God alone. So if a guy's ministry is small, he shouldn't be depressed. This is what God decided is best to give him. The guy's ministry is large. He should never be prideful about it. Why? Because this is what God decided is best to give him. This was Paul's view of ministry. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 5. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Answer, servants through whom you Corinthians believed as the Lord assigned to each. Think about that. 
as the Lord has assigned to each servant who each person would come to Christ through. God assigned those people to those servants. I planted, Paul says, I started the church, Acts 18. Apollos watered. He continued the ministry that I started in Corinth. But notice, who gave the growth? What does it say? God gave the growth. God caused the ministry to flourish with people getting saved and saved people getting sanctified. And then he he says for emphasis, verse seven, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is what? Is anything, anything. They're nothing, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Notice, not according to his results, not according to his budget, not according to the people in the seats, but according to his work, namely how he worked. For we are God's fellow workers. In other words, we work with God or better, God works with us in ministry. You are his field. As I was working on this message, I, I came to wish that my entire message was just on this text. That text says it all. But the point I want to, I hope to make today is that faithfulness is doing God's work in God's way according to God's word. That is faithfulness. Fruitfulness is rejoicing as the results fall according to God's will. So doing God's work in God's way as spelled out in God's word, that's faithfulness. Rejoicing in the results coming about according to God's will, that's fruitfulness. Now, fruit is a very interesting word to follow in the New Testament. That word fruit refers to actual, like, fruit. It also refers to newborns. So Luke one forty two, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mostly the word fruit is a metaphor for outcomes, for results that are produced by some previous action or state of affairs. A child is the result of the birth process. Fruit is the product of a healthy tree or vine. So the word fruit in the New Testament often refers to the outcome of a person's life. It's it's a metaphor used to describe the life that a person's actions produce. Jesus gives this general principle, Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. He says it differently, Matthew 7, 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. That's obvious, right? It's like, duh, good trees make good fruit. Bad trees, wait for it, make bad fruit. It's so obvious, it's deeply profound. Think about it. How many people hear that and go, duh, of course. But a false teacher's life is proved to be wicked, either through what they teach or how they live, but that duh is completely ignored. What do I mean? It's not until they are hurt by the false teacher that the light bulb goes on and shows them like, wait a minute, this guy's a false teacher. When Jesus is saying, yeah, um, before they hurt you, before you got, you let them get close to you so that they could hurt you, All I said to do was watch what was coming out of their lives. Compare that to my word. Any deviation at all, and you're supposed to run. You're not supposed to wait for them to hurt you. You're not supposed to wait for anything else. You just look and you go, okay, that's not biblical. That's not godly. I'm out of here. 
Jesus even said, Matthew 7, 16, you will recognize false teachers by their fruit. The evil coming out of their mouths and their lives exposes who they really are. Same is true for followers of Jesus. The proof that a person is a follower of his is their fruit. The outcome, the life that their actions produce. John 5, 8, 15, 8 says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove that is, you prove by your fruit to be my disciples. John the Baptist exhorts the crowd, listening to him, he says, Luke 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, show your repentance how? By your lives. Most famous verse on this idea is Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the spirit, the proof that the spirit is in you Christians is that you treat people with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. So the effect of the spirit inside of you, Christian, are these character traits in, in, a way, in the way that you treat the people you interact with. This is the proof. This is the evidence, the verification that you are born again. Each one of these virtues is commanded in the New Testament as well. So he causes this cluster of fruit to grow. and We cultivate that fruit in our lives. and We follow him. As Christians, we should live like Christianity is true. Ephesians 5.8 says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So the result of the truth in your life is a life of goodness and righteousness and truth. A person's life, their decisions, their actions are also the proof that a person is not a follower of Jesus. Listen to Matthew 7, 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. Romans 7, 5 puts it this way, quote, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Our sin produced actions that showed we were lost. And in saying all of that, the New Testament also uses fruit to talk about results, even the results of people's ministries. So the result of Jesus' ministry on the cross is described as fruit in John 12, 24, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about the cross. The results, the effect of the apostles' ministry are also described as fruit. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you, do not, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That is the result of their ministries would continue even though in the context they would be hated and persecuted by the world. Some of the fruit that would last are the souls that would be saved. Two passages in in the New Testament use the word fruit to describe souls that are saved. John 4.35 says, do not say there yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Souls are pictured as fruit being gathered eternal life. In Colossians 1.5, Paul's describing the effect of the gospel, saying, quote, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
It's a fruit in both texts is people getting saved through evangelism. That word increasing in verse six that I just said, it says the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. It's almost like a synonym for bearing fruit. Well, the same word is used in Acts to describe the effect of the apostles' ministry, saying, Acts 6.1, the disciples were increasing in number. Acts 6.7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Acts 12.23, the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 16.5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And Acts 19.20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. First church was fruitful 20 times in the book of Acts. Numerical growth was described and 14 times in Acts, spiritual growth is described. Why? Because numerical growth and spiritual growth are what it means to be fruitful. And what does that mean? What does that look like? What do we put in all together? That's God saving people, which adds to the numbers and God growing people, which increases holiness, Christ-likeness obedience, virtue. Interesting, there's nowhere in the New Testament that that says this is the formula. Just do these things and it's automatic. You just plug and play and your church will grow. I remember in those early days of Redeemer, hearing all of these gurus saying, this is how you turn a church around. I mean, you can get emails for days from companies that want to sell you stuff to take your church, break through 200, break through 300. It's just, there, there is so much out there for that. And pastors whose churches are dying or are struggling are going, okay, maybe like, maybe that'll be the key. I remember getting all these emails and being tempted to like, okay, maybe I should buy that one or buy that one or buy them all and, and just see if there's something in there that could help because this church is going down. I remember taking a step back from all of that and saying, God, if your word is not sufficient to turn this church around, then I don't want to turn it around. I want to be able to look at this thing and say, that was not me. You did this. Why? Because we decided early on to say, we're just going to do what the Bible tells churches to do. And if that can't turn this around, I don't want to turn it around. I didn't want kill the church on my resume. But if I was going to go down, I was going to go down being faithful to the word. I'm going to show you what that looks like as we go. I'm going to give you specifics about what that means. But why is it that there's no formula? Why is it that you, there's nothing, there's, there's no like a book of, uh, of growth techniques, like 67th book of the Bible where you're like, okay, this is how you do it. Because 1 Corinthians 3, 7 says what? Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything when it comes to the growth. Why? Because it's only God who gives the growth. He is sovereign over not, not only over who gets saved, but how the sinner gets saved and even who the sinner gets saved through. I remind you of verse five. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Merely servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He assigned this person to get saved through Paul. This person gets saved through Apollos. This person to grow through Apollos. This person to grow through Paul. God assigned it to them. So why are some solid biblical ministries bigger than others? 
The answer has nothing to do with the pastor's work, his holiness, his Christ-like decisions, his, his brain power. It has nothing to do with God's love for the pastor. All biblical ministries bear fruit. They get results in people's lives. The question about how much fruit do they bear, again, that is left to God's will. I think we see this principle in a passage like Mark Mark 4.20. Those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The text doesn't say why some people's lives bear more fruit than others, why there are more results of Christ-likeness and godliness and effect through some lives than others. It doesn't say, it just says that that's what happens. I think it's because that the fruit grows and how much of the fruit grows all depends on God who gives the growth. Listen, guys with big influential ministries do not have that because God loves them more, because they love God more, because they're more holy than the rest of us. All those men are sinners just like the rest of us. Remember, Christianity begins in a person's life when they say, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. That's everybody. From the greatest Christian you've ever interacted with to the the, the very top of the top of the, the Christian elite in this world down to the very person who got saved two seconds ago. It's the same thing. We all come in in the same place Sinners in need of a savior. Any competence we have comes from the Lord. Any gifting we have comes from the Lord. And what we're seeing in our text is any results we get come from the Lord. Only Jesus belongs on the pedestal. Those greatest men, those greatest leaders, they they do sinful, foolish things just like the rest of us. Only Jesus belongs on the pedestal pedestal because only he saves our souls from sin, death, and hell. It's like, it would be equivalent of, of having the, this, this one, the Mona Lisa. Okay, you've got, you've got the Mona Lisa there, beautiful painting, you know, it's considered one of the best ever. And there we are, looking at the Mona Lisa, looking at the results, and bypassing the, the artist bypassing Da Vinci, picking up the paintbrush and going, you are amazing. You are the greatest. You are fantastic. No one would do that because they know that is nothing, that, that, that is so minimal, that is practically nothing compared to the skillful hand of the artist. Listen, when, when you look out at ministries, God is doing exactly what he wants to do in those places. 1 Corinthians 3 says the results, the influence of their ministry came from God and it came from God because he assigned the people to their ministry to get saved through. He gave the growth thereafter because the ones who started the ministry and those who keep it going, according to 1 Corinthians 3, are nothing. They're nothing. Before I leave the subject of fruitfulness, does the New Testament give a formula for numeric growth? The answer is no. 
But does the New Testament describe the events surrounding numerical growth that can give us clues as to why growth happens? I think it does. I'm going to show you seven ways the church grew in the book of Acts. Before the text I'm going to read or after the text I'm going to read, you're going to see or easily infer growth. This is God's work. So when we say, okay, what does it look like to do God's work and God's way according to God's word? What does that look like? What, tell me what that means practically. I'm going to give you seven, seven practical points on this. First, biblical preaching causes church growth. Biblical preaching. Acts 2.41 says, those who received Peter's words were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Preaching is described as causing fruitful numerical growth. Acts 4.4, many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Acts 5.42 says, quote, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And then the very next verse, Acts 6.1, now in these days, when they were going house to house, preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Christ, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. I could keep going on this one. There are 12 more passages in Acts that describe fruitful numerical growth connected to biblical preaching. So the pastor who wants his church to grow in a way where God gives the growth, like the book of Acts, preach Christ, preach his word. Second, fellowship causes church growth. Acts 2.46 puts it this way, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They worshiped together, they ate together, they sang together, and the result of that is the Lord added to their number day by day. A growing church, in other words, is a church that interweaves their lives with each other in God-centered, God-honoring fellowship. Third prayer causes church growth. Before the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved. What were the 120 people doing? They were praying. 3,000 are saved. Acts 2.42, after Peter's sermon, what are they doing? They were, it says, devoted to prayer. Before men were sent out as missionaries, Barnabas and Paul, to reach people for Christ. Acts 13.3, what were they doing? After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Bottom line, a growing church is a praying church. Often churches don't grow because they don't pray. And when When we don't pray, we're saying by our lack of prayer, we got this, God. We can do this. We've got our techniques. We've got our, we've got our ingenuity. We've studied the whole thing out. This, we, we got this, Lord. Fourth, leadership causes church growth, the right leadership. Biblically qualified leadership causes church growth. Before the church grew by 3,000, the apostles were praying and they got their, they got their numbers back to 12. They added Mattathias to carry on the work. After the church grows about 10,000, they add seven men to help the apostles care for the physical needs in the church. And Acts 6-7 says, the result of that, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. 
Biblical leaders are ones who preach the truth and people get saved and people grow in their salvation. They care for the needs of God's people. They find solutions to the problems that are caused by growth. Growing churches led by godly, qualified, humble leaders. Lay involvement, fifth, causes church growth. Evangelism wasn't just the responsibility of the apostles or the deacons, but in Acts we see in chapter 8, 11, 13, 15, 16, 18, and 19, that all of God's people were telling lost people about Jesus. It wasn't just the professionals. It was everybody. Everybody saw it as their responsibility. I have this treasure. I've got to share this with somebody else. Growing churches are filled with people telling their friends and their family and their coworkers and fellow students about Christ. Six, sanctification. Growing Christians cause church growth. Listen to the reason why Acts 9.31 says the church grew all throughout the region surrounding Jerusalem. It says, quote, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the spirit, it multiplied. So as the church was growing spiritually, as they were living like God is watching, as they were cared for by God's spirit, it was growing numerically. Acts 11, Barnabas is sent to Antioch and listen to what it says happened there. Listen to the results that happened when he was there. It says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So here he is preaching, helping them grow in their relationship with the Lord, and, and through his ministry, through his, his, his godly leadership as well, a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts 16.5 says, quote, the churches in the city of Lystra were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So these growing churches are strong in the Lord and their commitment to him, their commitment to what he wants. And as a result, they grow. And then finally, seventh, even persecution caused church growth. Acts 8, Paul starts persecuting the church after Stephen is martyred. And chapter 8, verse 4 says, quote, those who were scattered, so they're leaving Jerusalem to avoid persecution. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then there's an example given of this in Philip in the rest of chapter eight, who is scattered to Samaria and sees a revival break out. Herod's persecution of the church in Acts 12 didn't stop the church. In fact, verse 24 says that despite the persecution, in the face of the persecution, quote, the word of God increased and multiplied. So persecution can't stop the church from growing. In fact, persecution shows people that Christians take this Jesus thing so seriously that they're willing to suffer for him. And through that witness, the church continues to grow. There's more. I know of 11 of these these various things that the book of Acts shows that here's what the first church did. And either before or after the church grew. It happened through preaching, prayer, fellowship, the right leadership, all Christians doing ministry, especially evangelism, growing spiritually, and even they grew through persecution. This is how God gave the growth. This is how God bore fruit and increased from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, these seven activities. But here's the thing. 
Far too many pastors today think these seven ways to grow numerically are lame, they're old-fashioned, they're ineffective, and they're just downright boring. You know what we really need? Ballet. That's going to that's gonna cause people to grow. You know what we really need? Smoke machines. We just had smoke machines. You know? That, that's what would do it. That, that would make, and if there was lasers going during the smoke machine, that would be awesome. Everyone would love that. They can get faster, more explosive results with celebrity, certain kinds of music, the right kinds of kids' ministry, the best programs or preaching that isn't too long and isn't too heady and isn't too biblical. So, Pastor, out there in the interweb, what's it going to be? You see, far too many pastors think that to be fruitful, they need to look outside the Bible to grow. They need to look to Hollywood entertainment, to Madison Avenue marketing techniques, to business, to psychology, to mysticism, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And pastors of churches are tempted constantly to follow all of that, especially when their church is small and this other church that started after them and is way bigger than them is doing all of these wonderful things, is growing like crazy because they're doing all that stuff and we're not. And what in the world? Why is that happening? Some will say they tried these seven things, but they just didn't work. So they, so what they do is they trade in real ministry for a simulation of the real thing. So it looks like the real thing because it happens in a building called a church. It happens with people leading who call themselves pastors who have a Bible in their hands that they rarely ever open. They, 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 they're doing ministry with little to no prayer. They, they hang, the, the church hangs out and watches TV and calls that fellowship. They aren't really growing spiritually, but it feels like they are because they, they leave each week with good feelings about themselves and good feelings about their church, but they're just as worldly as those who wouldn't be caught dead in a church. What, what's happening is pastors are playing church. They're not actually doing church. Why? Because it's not God's work done God's way according to God's word. It's God's work supposedly, done their way according to someone else's word. But think about it. What we just saw is so simple. You don't need a degree. You don't even need a mentor. Listen, churches bear fruit. They grow numerically. They grow spiritually. God causes the growth when churches are faithful to his word. It is not either or. It is both and. What did Acts eleven twenty three to 24 say? Again, listen carefully. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. There in two verses, we have the connection between faithfulness and fruitfulness. In other words, you are faithful in ministry. God grows the church as he wills. You're fruitful in ministry when you are faithful, doing his work, his way, 
in accordance with his word. To do church any other way is to never actually know if God is doing it or if you are. You think about that. I took the Bible, I set it aside, I read every single business book, leadership book I could get my hand on, organizational leadership, all of that. I I put all of my, my stock, my attention, my trust, my hope in that. And then I started a church, doing, putting all of that stuff into play. What you just said is, the Bible's not enough. The, Bible's, the Bible can't handle the 21st century. I'm going to set it aside because the good stuff is over here. That is... Um, yeah, that, that is pastoral malpractice. That is something, I, I, I can't imagine what it will be like to stand before the Lord and say, yeah, I, I just didn't think your word was enough for me to be a faithful pastor. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think that what you said there would really get the results I was looking for. Can you imagine saying that to the Lord? That's going to have some conversations with guys along those lines. And I just pray that before they stand before the Lord, they repent. So you've heard this week, in the words of 1 Corinthians 1.9, Nine other New Testament passages say the same thing. Quote, God is faithful. He's faithful throughout all generations from Abraham to Christ to today. He's faithful to himself. It is faith, not faithfulness, that saves you. Unless, of course, we're talking about Jesus' faithfulness. We're saved by his obedient life in the words of Romans 5.10 and 5.19. We've seen the story of New York City has tragically been one of unfaithfulness with only a few notable exceptions. We've been exhorted to be faithful in in our generation, in our time. That's because Jesus, six times in the New Testament, he is described as faithful. Here's just one, Hebrews 2.17. He is, quote, a faithful high priest. Okay, one more. Revelation 19.11, Jesus is faithful and true. God's word is called in Titus 1.9, trustworthy, the faithful word. It's faithful to the mind and will of the God who inspired it and gave it to us. So God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. His word is faithful. Christians are to be faithful. And pastors are, quote, to do church in a way that is faithful. So as we wrap up this conference, the question is an obvious one. What is it going to be for you? You may be faithful, and not very fruitful. You may be doing God's work and God's way according to God's will and still be small. You may grow really big and then it all crashes and burns. But would we ever say Jesus was not faithful or fruitful? Think about his ministry. Four guys to start out with, John chapter one. Goes from four guys to tens of thousands of people. By the end of his life, there's three women and one guy at the the cross. We look at that and go, what a loser. Based on the metrics that many churches go by, they would call Jesus a loser. You look at those numbers, those numbers 
That's, that, that's pathetic. Think about Jeremiah, 40 years of preaching, zero converts. What a loser. I remember a pastor saying to me, we do not hire guys that have a ministry like Jeremiah. No results, no job here. Unfortunately, that was my first day on the job when I heard that from the pastor I was working for. It's like, oh my word, what did I just sign up for? Jeremiah is a loser. Really? It's the longest book by a single author in the Bible, and he's a loser. Okay. No, he was faithful. He was faithful. Let me ask you, is there a group in the Bible that are small in number and faithful? What do we call those people? We call them the remnant. In the days of apostasy and discipline among God's people, where would you have wanted to be? With the large crowds or with the faithful few? We admire these people, small in number, but great in what? Great in faithfulness to the Lord, regardless of the world around them. That's what faithfulness is. It's staying committed to the Lord in what you do and how you live and how you do ministry and what you preach, regardless of anything. It's not folding when the hordes of false teachers and compromised evangelicals are coming for you. It's standing strong even when the world is against you. Pastors, wannabe pastors, 1 Corinthians 4.2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithfulness is what those who are entrusted with God's people are to strive for, are to thirst for, not numbers, not platforms, but faithfulness. It is required. Faithfulness marks the life of every member of Paul's team. Timothy, Silvanus, Tychicus, Epaphras, and Onesimus are all described with the one word, faithful. According to 2 Timothy 2.2, it is only faithful men who should learn biblical doctrine and only faithful men who should take that biblical doctrine and pass it on to the next generation. Unfaithful men who do not do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, according to his word, in other words, should not be in ministry. They are posers, to use the words of my surfer friends in high schools, for guys who dress like surfers and act like surfers, but never surf. These men are posers as pastors. When too many of them are wolves in shepherd's clothing. Like I said earlier, they need to repent of their faithlessness in God's word. Their faithlessness in God himself. They need to be faithful. It's a non-negotiable. Faithfulness is required. 1 Corinthians 4.2. And faithfulness is what all of our judgment days are moving towards. On that day, when your life is over, when you've preached your last sermon, when you've shared your last gospel, when, you've, when you are done, when it's all over and you stand before Jesus and reviews your life to reward you for the deeds that you've done in your body, nothing in all the world will matter on that day more than hearing just six simple words. Well done, good and faithful servant. For most of you, you, you will never be a pastor. I know that. 
But listen, if you have a faithful pastor, a pastor who is seeking with all of his heart to do God's work in God's ways, according to God's word, you cherish a man like that. You take great care of him. In the words of Hebrews 13, 17, let him do his work, quote, with joy and not with groaning. Why? Because the only thing harder to find in New York City than a really good souvenir for your kids is finding a really good and faithful pastor. You have one who is faithful and fruitful. May the story of his life and your lives together be one of faithfulness so that 50 years from now, we will all be rejoicing either here or in heaven at what God has done here. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up this conference, it is so good that we're here right now. It is so good that we have removed other things from our lives that gives focused attention to your word and how you want your word to impact our lives. You, you actually show us in times like this what it would be like if we removed every distraction and just communed with you and your word and your truth. So each of us are here for various reasons. You're doing specific works in, in, in our personal life that you're not doing with the person next to us, but you're, you're, you're here at work, moving, challenging, correcting, encouraging. And so I want to thank you again for being active here in this room. And I want to one final time recognize that none of this is possible without our precious Savior. There's no hope of being faithful or fruitful apart from him. Jesus, thank you for living a life of perfect faithfulness. And when you gave up your body on the tree, You knew, but no one that day knew the massive amount of fruit that would come from your death. We are all here today because of what you, your faithfulness. So we thank you for that. We pray for your blessing as we all leave here, wherever we're going to go next. Leave us, as we leave, may the taste of your truth be in our hearts, on our minds, for the glory of your beautiful name. Amen.